Hello, you're listening to the My Care Champion Cast. I'm your host, Lucy Shimatero of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. Each month, we invite industry experts and thought leaders to discuss relevant healthcare issues. Join us as we explore key topics that affect Michigan hospitals, health systems, and the health of our communities. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the My Care Champion Cast. We hope you enjoyed our last episode with Brian and Tony Denton, who discussed some of the things that are top of mind for the MHA, our Board of Trustees, and our members in the new program year, along with some exciting things happening over at Michigan Medicine. In that conversation, you hear both Brian and Tony discussing a lot of the efforts underway to support our healthcare workforce since the pandemic, and a huge part of the work we do at the MHA before and after COVID lies in the advocacy space. So for today, we have a very special guest, our very own Laura Apple, who is Executive Vice President of Government Relations and Public Policy at the MHA. As you can probably guess from the title, she's here to talk about a very important date coming up on November 8th, which is the election. Throughout this episode, you can expect to learn more about why your vote matters, how it directly impacts healthcare, and of course, details of our candidates and what you can expect to see on the ballot this year. So with that, Laura, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Well, I know you've been on the podcast before. Um, You've been a guest, but it's been a while and I know your role has changed since that episode. So can you kick us off by just sharing some details about your job and the teams you support at the MHA? Sure. So I'm responsible for the MHA's divisions of policy, advocacy, and communications, which means that we handle at our downtown office... uh, lobbying, policy development, financial analysis, and the communications efforts to share information about hospitals and health systems Mm -hmm. with everyone in the state. Sometimes it's targeted at lawmakers, other times more broadly at policymakers, sometimes the general public, uh, business leaders. It's a a very broad-based effort, and we have a terrific team. Wonderful. Well, it's a pleasure to be on your team. (laughs) Um, So I will just dive right into the conversation. Uh, The first question I have is pretty cut and dry, and that is, why do Michiganders need to get out and vote this year? So we have nearly every office is on the ballot this year. We don't have a U.S. Senate race on the ballot, but other than that, everybody is up for election. Mm -hmm. So there's a governor's race. We're going to talk about Secretary of State and Attorney General. Every member of the Michigan House of Representatives, which is 110 members, and every member of the Michigan Senate is up for re-election or to be replaced Mm -hmm. because of term limits or running for another office, and that's 38 seats. In addition, we have two open seats on our Michigan Supreme Court. You have many, many local officials who are running for office, including uh, you might even have a library board, certainly in my hometown, we have a school board election. There are There's local initiatives as well. And then at the state level, we have three ballot proposals. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a pretty big deal. And for those of us who are in the healthcare world, the folks that we elect at the state and local level, they're just critical to all of the things that happen in healthcare. And you might think, well, you know, how is that so? So at the state level, the legislature regulates physician and nursing practice. They regulate mental and behavioral health care. 
Um, the governor selects the director of the Department of Health and Human Services. And at, in that department, they manage, for example, all policy around vaccination or Medicaid reimbursement is in the MDHHS uh, purview. The legislature appropriates nearly all of the state money that we spend on anything that re relates to our membership. And uh, once in a while, there's some federal dollars that go direct. But for the most part, that's where we're putting our advocacy efforts mm -hmm. is at the state legislature. And then local government. I know, for example, that housing is a huge issue for many of our members mm -hmm. uh, because when they're recruiting workforce, they need a place for those folks to live. And housing ordinances come from your local city council or other, you know, boards of review or planning commissions, et cetera. So mm -hmm. it, it matters at every level. Right. It's a big election. So what are some of the key dates that we should keep in mind for this year's? Yeah, absolutely. Michigan has a much more flexible uh, voting mechanisms this year mm -hmm. compared to uh, within the last couple of years because we did pass some changes to our Constitution. Uh, you may vote in person by absentee ballot right now. You can go to your clerk's office and now until Monday, November 7th, and stand right there with your absentee ballot and vote and then hand it back to your clerk. Mm -hmm. That's probably one of the easiest things to do, and there probably won't be a line. You can register to vote using an online option through Monday, October 24th. Mm -hmm. You must return an absentee ballot if you're using the mail. You really need to do it by Friday, November 4th at 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. And then finally, as you mentioned, Election Day is actually November 8th. Yep. So all of these options are available, and you can still um, vote on November uh, 8th in person. There is also a requirement that the every local clerk must have eight hours available on the weekend before the election, wow. November 5th and 6th, some period of time combined that equals eight hours, where you can vote uh, in the clerk's office on the weekend. Wow. So there's, there's a weekend voting option. Wow. And we will have all those dates listed in the description of the episode for anyone who may be driving or doesn't have a pen. We'll have those easily accessible to all of those listening. So let's say a voter doesn't have a direct role within a hospital or a health system. Um, how does the election impact their access to health care, and why does it matter that yeah, they that's, vote? That's a great question. For example, in 2019, the legislature, and then signed by the governor, finally made really substantial changes to our auto no-fault law. And before that, we all had essentially the same type of coverage under our auto insurance, which is a lifetime benefit in case someone was catastrophically injured. And this extended not only to the driver and the person who bought the coverage, but everyone in their household that was also a family member. And after the law change, it took a couple years for this all to fully take effect, but drivers now have the option to choose much less coverage. Mm. And uh, the there was a substantial change in the way that hospitals are reimbursed and also post-acute providers. And we've seen a number of post-acute providers are no longer able to stay in business. This is most dramatically impacted families who had a person who was previous to the law change 
you know, someone who had perhaps been in care for 10 or 15 or even longer years, and their post-acute provider of home services, physical therapy, transportation, whatever it might be, they've left the business altogether or they're no longer able to provide care at the rates that no fault will mm. uh, sustain. And that's been a huge, made a huge difference to um, many, many families. The, um, the other thing is, is it's put a lot of pressure, the change in reimbursement has put a huge amount of pressure on hospitals, for example, with level one trauma centers. Mm -hmm. Level one trauma centers are expensive to operate because of all of the requirements. I remember years ago, somebody telling me something in the range of there are 20 subspecialty physicians who must physically be in the building at all times in order to be a level one trauma center. Mm. Well, you know, one physician, let's say it's neurosurgery. There can't be just one physician that lives there 24 seven. Right. That means you really have to have three. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I think is really important to understand about the way that trauma centers, emergency departments, the way that they work, there's fixed cost to that. They all have to be there whether or not anyone shows up. Mm -hmm. So we have to have an orthopedic surgeon on hand 24 hours. Let's say that 24 hours is tomorrow, and then no one appears that needs orthopedic surgery. Mm -hmm. We still have to have them, yeah. and we still have to pay for that. So those fixed costs are even more difficult to cover now that the no-fault reimbursement is so dramatically less. Mm -hmm. So it's a big deal in terms of um, what it means for access to care and, uh, and coverage. Another example, something that the MHA worked at for many, many years, is the opt-out provision for certified registered nurse anesthetists. And this was a situation where the federal government allows states to opt out from uh, CRNAs, as we call them, uh, being directly supervised by another physician. Mm -hmm. And so we've... Uh, that legislation passed last year, and then the governor submitted the uh, letter to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services at the federal government saying the state would like to opt out of that requirement, mm -hmm. and we've been approved for that. We're all good to go, which means that we can use the anesthesia services that those uh, CRNAs provide uh, within their scope of practice mm -hmm. in uh, many, many areas of the state where we really just didn't have uh, physicians who were available to supervise, nor did we have any anesthesiologists available to practice uh, either. So it's really a, an amazing way to get access to an anesthesia services in, in underserved areas. Yeah, absolutely. I have a friend who's a CRNA, so I know that was a big deal to her. And even if there isn't a personal tie, it's those are great examples of how this legislation that we're voting on is going to have a lasting impact on healthcare and different right. sectors of healthcare. Well, it shows why we need we need people in office at every level who understand what it what their role is in making policy decisions that affect healthcare mm -hmm. because it really is it might seem you can have a short bill of only not even a few pages, you know, a few paragraphs, but it can make a very big difference depending what the language in that bill is. Right. and Or like a local ordinance or a regulation. Uh, 
we need healthcare champions at every level for that reason. Absolutely, yeah. Well, the only thing more important than voting is doing your research before you get to the polls. So uh, can you just take some time to share uh, details about this year's candidates? Um, and we can start with Governor and go from there. Sure, absolutely. So probably just about everyone listening to this podcast knows that our incumbent governor is Gretchen Whitmer. She's an attorney. She's a former member of the legislature, both in the House and the Senate. We've had a strong working relationship with the governor uh, for many years, certainly during her time in the legislature. She helped us get the Healthy Michigan Plan passed. That's the Medicaid expansion that was available under the Affordable Care Act. You might wonder whatever happened with that and, and it, you know, did it turn out to be important? Um, the outside estimates of the number of people who would need that coverage was something like 400 or 500,000. Uh, the Healthy Michigan Plan before the pandemic regularly carried over 600,000 people. Mm -hmm. And during the pandemic, we added another 300,000 people. So it was a lifesaver to be able to keep people covered during the pandemic. Uh, the governor clearly was in the lead during our very difficult, shared very difficult time in healthcare because of the COVID-19 novel virus. And, you know, we are um, working with her administration on an ongoing basis on our behavioral health crisis. Her opponent is a, a woman named Tudor Dixon. She formerly worked in the steel industry. She's also um, self-described uh, as a conservative media activist. She um, left the steel industry some time ago to begin her media career and worked at something called Lumen News. I have to admit I'm not familiar with that. But there she developed pro-America, pro-Constitution morning news programs for grade school students. So that's, that's her background. Uh, at the statewide level, we have um, three other races that I'm going to cover mm -hmm. on the attorney general end. Our incumbent attorney general is a woman named Dana Nessel. She, prior to being our attorney general, was a prosecutor, a private attorney. She litigated on some LGBTQ issues. Um, during her role as AG, she was in two national coalitions, which were important to us, one to the Affordable Care Act at the federal level in the federal courts, and then she was active as uh, representing Michigan in the lawsuit against the opiate manufacturers, which re led to a substantial settlement for both the state and our municipalities, including our counties. Her opponent is a gentleman named Matt DiPerno. He is probably best known for his activities following the 2020 election. Uh, some folks in Antrim County asked him to represent them in a lawsuit that they filed against Antrim County and the Secretary of State's office. Uh, they conducted an audit of that outcome of the November 2020 general election up there in that particular county, and um, they uh, investigated the um, Dominion voting machines, and um, they would—they perhaps have been frustrated with how far the results of their investigation have gone. But they believe that they found some irregularities, uh, you know, prior to, during, and after that uh, 2020 elections. Very interesting um, uh, attorney, and um, obviously very interested in how our elections are run. Another person, uh, Secretary of State. You know, we probably are all familiar with going 
or previously going to our Secretary of State's office. Now we can do so many things online yes. and by mail, and that's been a huge improvement. But um, you know, the Secretary of State also manages our registration roles for organ donation. Mm. So when it comes to health care, our Secretary of State certainly has uh, influence there. Our, our incumbent Secretary of State is Jocelyn Benson. She has been involved in a number of... Um, activities regarding uh, sports and race relations uh, in professional sports. She also was the former dean of the Wayne State University Law School mm -hmm. during her time as Secretary of State. She really has also focused her efforts on the election access. Her opponent is a woman named Christina Caramo. She's a public speaking and college orientation professor at Wayne Commun County Community College. Mm -hmm. And um, she had been a uh, candidate for Oakland County Commissioner uh, in 2018. She has served on uh, Right to Life of Michigan's Black Leadership Committee, and she's also been the communications chair for the Oakland County Republican Party and the Michigan Republican Party State Committee. Her primary focus is the issue of election security. Mm -hmm. She believes that she witnessed fraud while serving as a poll challenger during the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I'll conclude with a, just a little bit about our Michigan Supreme Court. There are two seats open on the nonpartisan section of your ballot. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to vote um, straight party ticket, you might only fill out one little bubble on your ballot, which, you know, for Democrat or Republican. But that will not cover you on this nonpartisan section. So when you get to the nonpartisan section, you have to vote individually. Two incumbent justices, Brian Zara and uh, Richard Bernstein, are running for re-election. State Representative Kira Bolden, uh, Paul Hudson, who's an attorney from Miller Canfield, and Carrie Lee Morgan, who's an attorney uh, with another law firm, are all running and their eight-year term would begin January 1, 2023. And again, there are five on your ballot, and you may only vote for two. Mm. Good to know. Yeah, I appreciate you running through those details. And just a quick uh, reminder to our listeners that we have our My Vote Matters Race of the Week series, which is available at mha.org in our newsroom. Um, and that outlines details about each candidate, similarly to how Laura just walked through them. And we encourage anyone listening to keep an eye out for those every week on our social media channels and our website. So ballot proposals, what yeah. should we expect to see? So you will see three ballot proposals on your ballot. And again, these require separate voting. You cannot um, complete voting for these without, with, with a simply um, voting straight party. So proposal one, this is a proposal to amend our Michigan constitution to modify our term limits. We would still have term limits. Right now, Michigan has the um, shortest term limits in the country. A person may serve in our Michigan House for only three terms, and at the end of three terms, six years, they are done for a lifetime. This would allow a person to serve for 12 years or six terms. Now, folks might say, well, that seems like a long time. Comparatively, you've doubled the amount of time. Uh, but the other thing that the... Um, proposal says is you can only serve anywhere combined for 12 years. So if you serve all 12 of your years in the House, you can't go on to spend any time in the Senate. 
So right now you could serve three terms in the House, six years, and two terms in the Senate, four years each. That totals up to 14. So in the aggregate, we're actually taking two years of eligible time away from folks. So folks could spend three terms in the Senate, six terms in the House, but if they do either one of those, that's all they could do, and they could not switch to the other body. So that would be out. The other thing that this uh, proposal does is it does implement a modest requirement for filing annual financial disclosures. Michigan is only one of two states that does not have any financial disclosure requirement for state elected officials. Mm. Uh, I want to be clear, it's modest and it requires legislative action, but uh, as a friend of mine says, well, right now we have nothing. So, uh, and to be, you know, to have 48 out of 50 states um, have something, it seems like we're definitely an outlier there, and uh, financial disclosure reporting seems to be the right way to go. In addition to being uh, required of every member of the legislature, it would also incorporate governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, and attorney general. So all of the um, uh, elected officials that I just ran through. The next proposal you see on your ballot, Proposal 2, amends the Michigan Constitution to uh, include several voting and election provisions. Several new voting rights would be enshrined in the Michigan Constitution. Some of those are currently in our Michigan election law, but they were not um, added to the Constitution. So uh, something that would be entirely new, for example, though, would be um, early voting provisions. Mm. So, but when you put them in the Constitution, it's much more difficult to change those as opposed to something that's just in statute that takes a majority vote of 56 votes in the House or 20 votes in the Senate to change. And then finally, of course, we have Proposal 3. This is our um, proposal regarding the Dobbs decision, which was the decision at the U.S. Supreme Court to return the question of whether or not abortion is legal to the states. Uh, it's no longer protected by the U.S. Constitution, and the status of abortion um, access is a responsibility of the state's in Michigan, we have a law that was originally established in 1846. It prohibits most abortions, but was unenforceable during the period of the Roe v. Wade decision being in effect. This older or very old law could become active once again unless we change our Michigan Constitution. So Proposal 3 is proposed as an amendment to the Constitution, the Michigan Constitution, to establish an explicit right to reproductive freedom in all matters related to pregnancy. And uh, I'm just going to read from our nonpartisan analysis from the Citizens Research Council because I, I really appreciate all of the work they do every uh, uh, election season. They've, uh, for over 100 years, the CRC has been available to provide this type of free information to um, everyone in Michigan. So their analysis, if Proposal 3 is adopted, the fundamental right to reproductive health care for matters related to pregnancy, including access to abortion prior to the stage of viability, would be guaranteed to all individuals by the Michigan Constitution. Their analysis regarding if Proposal 3 is rejected 
regulatory decisions regarding reproductive health, including abortion, will revert to the state courts and legislature. Mm-hmm. Those are really important things to know before going into it, because yeah. I know a lot of people run into the situation where they get to the, they study the candidates, but they don't realize they also have to research. And one of the things uh, um, I know that we'll share in the show notes is uh, the Citizens Research Council recently did a webinar on mm. all three ballot proposals, and we'll put the link in there uh, to the webinar. You can, um, if you'd like to listen rather than read, uh, or just put it on in the car, that will be, you can link to that, mm-hmm. uh, or the slide deck is available at the same link. So you can just run through the slides yourself. You don't have to wait for someone else to do it for you. Perfect. Yes, we will definitely include that resource in the description of the episode. Um, but to close things out on a more personal note, I'm just curious, what motivates you to vote outside of the work that you do? Yeah, you know, I saw that question and I thought, what what does motivate me to vote? And, you know, I have some really early memories of being in, involved politically. I mean, just minorly. Um, you know, I remember uh, my mom taking us to vote mm-hmm. when I was a little kid. I remember voting in the weekly reader poll. Mm-hmm. I remember that we were, I remember thinking about the election um, when I was in fifth grade. I don't even know why, but uh, I think it was probably because the opportunity was presented to me to be thinking about our elections. Like I said, I had great um, uh, modeling from my parents. You know, they were just, they were, my dad uh, was a regular voter. My mom still is. Uh, you know, it was part of what you, it's just part of what you did. Right. You know, and um, uh, then when I was in school at, at U of M, I was friends with a lot of people who were, a lot more politically astute than I was. Mm. Although I remember being in high school, some of my some of the guys that I was in school with, they were very tuned in, and it's just always kind of around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then working in the legislature, you know, you just really you get a very deep understanding of just how different things are depending on who is in charge yeah. and what their perspective is. Yeah. And. Uh, you know, we had threats to our um, no-fault law for, for a decade. And while we were working on that, I met many people whose families were really critically changed by the catastrophic injury to a family member. And I remember thinking, you know, I'll do anything I can to um, to keep helping these folks. And that really mattered on who was, you know, who our health care champions were in the legislature. So it started off kind of... Um, just by you know, being having the benefit of good examples, and it grew into seeing what the real difference it made on a day-to-day um, basis for people who have been seriously injured and really you know need that test that we all stand up to, which is you know we know how um, we know how proud of ourselves we can be by how we treat those of us who need the mm-hmm. most care. Yeah, and we're all vulnerable to being in that all position. Vulnerable to we're being all vulnerable to being in that position. We're all patients. You know, before we're patients, we rely on our healthcare system. We will at right. one point, whether it's you know personal or you know a loved one. So That's right. you heard it here first. Your vote matters always. So Laura, thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate you offering such great insight, and hope this conversation motivated anyone on the fence about voting to make sure they get to the polls on November eighth. With that, I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in and encourage you to review the list of key dates related to the election that we've provided in the episode's description. Just a friendly reminder that you can register to vote in person at your clerk's office all the way up until and on Election Day from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. 
Lastly, anyone interested in learning more about our other advocacy efforts at the MHA can head to mha.org and keep an eye out for our Race of the Week series as well. Thanks, and we'll see you at the polls. Thanks for listening to the My Care Champion Cast. To learn more or get involved, visit mycarematters.org. That's mi carematters.org. <laughs>